Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Andrew Mullally, and this is where we and our guests discuss relevant and health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. We are brought to you in part by the generous underwriting of CMF Curo. Learn more at mycatholichealthcare.org. Live your Catholic faith in your healthcare with CMF Curo. Today, our guests will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Joining us again will be ophthalmologist Kathy Schanzer, who has already highlighted the work that ophthalmologists commonly do, but she's now going to talk about an incredible and sustainable medical mission in West Africa, literally giving sight to the blind, that she and her husband started about 15 years ago. So, Andrew, in general, what makes the topic of medical missions important, and what's been your experience with medical missions? Yeah, I'm I'm excited to talk to her because I think people have a variety of experience, but one thing that's common, especially for people in medicine, is that most people have some experience. And uh, I, I think it's very interesting to hear about the clinic that she has started over there and works at compared to some of the other experiences. I know for myself, I felt like if I wanted to be a doctor, which I did, I had to do something missionary-related to get into medical school. And I know a lot of people feel that way. It's almost a requirement, written or unwritten. Um, I like the idea of mission work, but for for me, that was kind of the thing that got me interested in it because I wanted to be a doctor. Um, That's probably not going to lead to the most fulfilling mission trips. Uh, (laughs) I went to uh, Tijuana in Mexico and um, there was, it, it wasn't explicitly only medical missions. It was a more of a general mission trip where there was some home visits and stuff with the elderly. And, you know, all of the things that the participants get from going on a mission trip, I think I got that. You you have the opportunity to see how other people live, the opportunity to help other people, hopefully share Christ with them, and kind of learn about other cultures as well and check that box for med school. But it's it's interesting <laughs> because I've been reading more and more about this this idea of kind of the voluntourism and the idea of how is this different than just kind of a a vacation where you're traveling? What makes it different and what makes it sustainable? How much good can I actually do in eight days down in Tijuana uh, compared to something, you know, kind of as a juxtaposition, what she's doing over in Sierra Leone? Tom, what, what was your experience with missionary work? Well, mine was in a fourth year medical school, and I thought, heck, I'm a Catholic, and I'm going to be a doctor, so therefore I must do medical missions. It was just like this unwritten expectation, like you said. So I started my first year of medical school with eight weeks traveling with a missionary surgeon in the Philippines. Now, he himself was Filipino, and he traveled, I mean, they've got over 7,000 islands there. They're not all inhabited, but seemed like it. Uh, So anyway, we spent time on probably eight or 10 different islands during that time. Now, the good thing about this is he was always operating within uh, the context of a long-term facility that was staffed by other people when he wasn't there. Um, One of the most fascinating places we spent time, uh, at the time, it was just before they shut these down, was a Vietnamese refugee camp. So this was in the summer of 1989, and there were lots of boat people who floated east, and the currents took them to the Philippines. And uh, so- Yes. And so uh, that gave me a real insight into how these people were living. I got to work with uh, other Filipino doctors while I was there. Um, I got to do a, a few procedures, see some diseases like leprosy that I never saw in the, in the United States. I got to uh, assist in surgery where, you know, the only things we used were a flashlight and a ketamine drip for anesthesia. So there was no anesthesiologist in, in one of the hospitals. And this wow. surgeon- did he was a general surgeon, but he learned how to do orthopedic work, and he was even learning how to do cataracts and lens replacements, which is you know the the expertise of uh, Kathy, who we're going to have back on here again. Pretty technical. Uh, yes, but uh, to my surprise, I found the experience myself not fulfilling at all. It was just it was just bizarre. It was just like dry as dust inside. Uh, you know, I'm doing something that should be really exciting, and it just didn't do it for me. And, you know, I give talks to medical students on choosing their specialty. And part of the talks are on spiritual gifts. And we're all given certain spiritual gifts at baptism. And one of them is missionary lifestyle, which means that you are not satisfied and, and you feel most fulfilled when you are living with people in another culture, 
whether it's within your own country, but among that culture or in another country in that culture, and you have a, a zeal to do it. I did not have that. What do you think, so Andrew? Did you? No, I don't think so. I don't think that was my calling. But you, the way you put it makes a lot of sense because I have some friends, a husband and wife physician team. They both grew up doing missionary work with their folks. And that's kind of the thing on their heart and it drives their decisions. How can we do this? How can we get back at this? This is what we were built for, you know? Yeah, and so which is great. It might, it might be a personality thing and, and it might be too. Certain things, I always thought ophthalmology lent itself awesome to missionary work because yes. you can get in, help people and go home potentially. For me, you know, trying to get people to take blood pressure medicine, that's hard enough in America. Uh, I can't even imagine <laughs> where you're going to get blood pressure medicine in some of these places. But it's an important topic because it's super common. They said, you know, some of the statistics I, I had a chance to see was maybe a quarter of a billion dollars annually is kind of a conservative estimate of how much money's going into this, apart from loss of opportunity, people not working at home, and maybe some somewhere around 2 million ah, people from America alone go on a mission trip. So it's something that happens uh, frequently. Most of us partake in some respect, but then some people, this is their lifestyle and this is what they were built for. Kathy's a good example of that. And hopefully we can learn more about her clinic and especially how the sustainable missionary work is different than maybe the experience I had or some of you may have had as listeners at home. Yeah, and I know she's going to have some great stories. So before we go to Kathy, we have our medical trivia question of the day. And the category is going to be blind spots. So blind spots can be actual and vision. Blind spots can be just part of our not noticing things socially and noticing social cues. Well, this time it's going to be anatomic. So the question <laughs> is very simple. What is the anatomic cause of the blind spot in each of your eyes? In other words, what's going on in the back of the eye that there is a spot where we can't see? Uh, you're going to have to stay on till the end of the show to find out. But we'll be back with our guest, Kathy Schanzer, and missionary work to the blind in Africa after the break. And welcome to our special guest interview today with Kathy Schanzer. We have her back to talk about something near and dear to her heart. She uh, was born in Texas, went to medical school and residency there. But now she's in Sayre, Pennsylvania with a large eye surgery practice. That is the two months of the year uh, or the 12, 10 months of the year. She's not in Sierra Leone, Africa, which is what we're going to be mostly talking about. She's been married for 43 years to Tom, has eight adopted children, 21 grandchildren. Uh, but you can find out more about what we're going to talk about at uh, www.thegiftsofsarabu.com. That's S-E-R-A-B-U dot com. So, Kathy, welcome back to Dr. Doctor. We found out that she got to listen and watch the last episode in Africa in the month of June. So what led you and your husband to this crazy idea of starting a mission for giving sight to the blind in Africa? Well, actually, that crazy idea started when I was in grade school. I heard a missionary talk about doing mission work, and I was determined that's what I was going to do. So after I met my husband, uh, it took a while to convince him that that's what he wanted to do, too. So our first, <laughs> our first uh, actual mission trip was in 1988 uh, to Abak, Nigeria. And I had just uh, opened up the American Academy of Ophthalmology mission book and found a two-week program where I called this guy in Chicago and I said, okay, sign me up. And he goes, great. And I said, who's going? And he goes, whoever you get. So what do I need to take? Whatever you're going to need. So by the seat of my pants, <laughs> my first mission trip was totally unprepared, unrehearsed, totally, just totally inadequate. But, but we went and we were successful. We were in this little village in the back Nigeria. And that's when Tom got bitten by the bug. And after that, uh, we jumped around to different countries with the volunteers in mission of the Methodist Church. Anybody who needed an eye program, we'd go with them. And, and we met a gentleman who was a native Sierra Leonean who asked us, when the war is over, will you come to my country? So in oh. 2000, when the Civil War was over, that's the big blood diamonds um, war, that Civil War they had. When that was over, we started to go to Freetown, Sierra Leone, which is the capital city. Whereupon we ultimately met Archbishop Gonda, the Catholic Archbishop there, who said, why are you working here when people of country have no access to health care? People in the capital city, they've got access. 
So go upcountry and um, specifically to Surabu, which was his home village. So we made our little trip up there and I came back and I said, oh, Archbishop, with all respect, I need some stuff to do surgery, like <laughs> water, like electricity, <laughs> like clean environment. And he said, the problem with you Americans is you have no faith in God. If you had faith in God, <laughs> there would be an eye clinic wow. in Surabu, Sierra Leone. So he pulled the faith card. And so, you know, that's what led us to build an eye clinic there. We liquidated a bunch of stuff. And luckily, Tom's background is in healthcare administration. And he had built ah. surgery centers in the past. So it shows oh. how God works. I mean, we didn't plan this, but... God planned it. And so we, um, the next year, Tom gathered stuff together and we built the eye clinic and we've been going there every January and June since. Gee so, whiz. So, so what year was that finished? That was 2006. 2006. Yeah. Man, that's great. Well, t tell us about some of the eye problems they have over there. Are they similar to what you would be doing here? Or different types of work? Uh, different. Um, so the number one cause of reversible blindness in developing countries are cataracts. So that's probably our number one thing. But it's not just the cataracts like we see here, where people may have some glare or difficulty driving at night. These are white cataracts that the patient has to be led in with a stick. Both pupils are completely white. They can't see anything. Um, in addition to it being a very dense cataract, they frequently have some type of inflammation like uveitis so that the iris, the colored part of the eye, is plastered down to the cataract itself. So you have to do, um, you have to break open all of the scarring. Um, it's an agricultural community, so oftentimes the zonules that holds the cataract in place, they're very loose. So you have that to deal with. So the cataracts are very difficult. We also have people come in with end-stage glaucoma. So you both probably know that. So, Kathy, back to the cataracts. Are these different kinds of cataracts in the U.S., or would Americans get the same kind if they weren't treated when they typically are? Americans could, as a matter of fact, Americans do get the same uh, cataract if they're not treated um, soon enough. I've taken care of patients here in the United States that have similar cataracts, but they don't have the other comorbidities. So they have the dense white cataract, but they don't have the scarring. They don't have the loose annuals. I have, um, I always have a fellow, a global ophthalmology fellow from Will's Eye Hospital with us. And Ooh, uh, good the one with us in June said, I've been to India and I've been to Haiti and I've been to Peru and I've been, and I have never encountered the kind of cataracts that we've encountered here in Surabu. Wow. So it's it's just way out in the village. It's uh, it's just the way it is. So it's because of poor health in general, or is it something special genetically with those people? It, poor health is part of it. Uh, being an agricultural community, there tends to be a lot of trauma. So there, the okay. zonules mm -hmm. that hold the cataract in place, uh, those zonules are very loose. And so that makes the surgery difficult. They tend to get a lot of uveitis. Some of that is due to river blindness, which is onchocoriasis, and that will cause yes. the iris to plaster down to the, the cataract okay. as well. So, you know, it's a it's a multifactorial problem. And and one of the tough things is you remove this white cataract and then you find that the retina has been completely eaten up by the onchocoriasis. And so they may have mm. a minimal improvement of their vision from light perception to maybe hand motion or count fingers, but not to, you know, 2020. And so that's always frustrating because we don't have any electrophysiological equipment there to test the retina and, and how healthy it might be. How, how many people are over there? Is this a small village or it sounds to me like people are probably traveling to come come see you guys there. That's right. Our village is about, it, when we started, there was about 3,000 people. It's now up to about 5,000 because we have water wells, which a lot of places don't have water. Uh, but um, we now have people traveling from six surrounding countries because they know they can come Countries? Here. Countries, Not yes. counties. Countries, wow. like, like from Guinea. So we're in Sierra Leone and they're coming from Guinea, Liberia, Nigeria, um, and so they're coming from these other countries to get eye care for a couple of reasons. One, they don't have to pay. We do this totally 
gratis to them. But also it's the one place in Western Africa where they can get modern cataract surgery and know that someone's not experimenting on them. Years before we opened our clinic, a group went to Sierra Leone and blinded about 200 people by having a cataract camp that was inappropriately managed. And I know one of your questions was, you know, what are some of the inappropriate things that happen? And it's when doctors think, oh, I'll just go over there and I'll experiment or I'll practice on someone not knowing what they're doing. And so as a consequence, that, that was not an American eye doctor. That happened to be someone from China or a group from China. They don't want anybody coming near them unless they're from America. So they're, wow. they're, they're, if they hear that it's another group, they don't want them coming to that area. It just, What's it, the you know. language in Sierra Leone? Do they speak English? Um, Sierra Leone was a British colony. So the, right. a lot of them do speak English and they teach, they speak English in the schools, in the mission schools. Okay. Uh, on the list of diseases, you're about to go into glaucoma. Tell us what other diseases you see there. Okay. So glaucoma is, uh, you know, the incidence of glaucoma rises after the age of 40 and is worse in the African-American population. Well, it's worse in the African population. So these people often will come in with end-stage glaucoma, meaning that their visual fields are already severely constricted and their optic nerves are already severely damaged. And, and we may be able to control their pressure a little bit, but we're not going to be able to restore the sight that's been lost already due to the, um, due to the, the glaucoma. So that's always unfortunate. One of the other things that, that just always breaks my heart is when a patient has been treated by a traditional healer, you might call it medicine man, you might call it whatever you want. But anyway, yes. so for example, if a patient has a, a corneal ulcer, they may be told to put tree bark in their eye. Well, obviously an ulcer is going to be an area that's thinning and you put something sharp in the eye and then the cornea perforates. And so now you've got an eye that's got half the iris hanging out and it's painful. We had a woman come in on this trip and that exact thing had happened. She had an infection in the eye. She was told to put some weird herbs, leaves or something in her eye. And so by the time she got to us, she couldn't see and her iris, her, the entire inferior part of her cornea was gone and the iris was bulging out. There is, there's nothing to do at that point. So those are always, those are heartbreaking because had we seen her first, uh, we could have made a difference. Uh, On a trip a few years ago, we saw a baby whose grandmother took him to um, a traditional healer and he had no corneas left. And I mean, literally because of the stuff they had put in this baby's eyes, no corneas were there. His iris was totally exposed. So it's that kind of thing that's always um, difficult. And then they'll come in with these huge tumors. I'm not sure if they're like a rhabdomyosarcoma or if it may be like a Burkitt's lymphoma, but they're the huge tumors that are hanging out of the Mm -hmm. eye. And, um, they, they need chemo. I, and I've spoken to some of the doctors at St. Jude's and they said the problem is that they would have to have intrathecal chemo and then you would need- Which to means in the spinal column, the spine, exactly. spinal cord. And in, in, in addition, you would need to do counts on them every week. Well, this is an agricultural group of people. They've got to get back to their little farm so they can survive. So we had one child that we tried to debulk his tumor. He had been previously treated because he was about 12 years old. They don't usually live that long. And so he'd been previously treated and we thought maybe if we could debulk it and make him cosmetically better, it would, it would be of some benefit. So we started on the surgery and he started bleeding and he started bleeding and he started, yes. I was horrible. So, um, we welcome went, to my world. <laughs> we, sent, we sent for father, we sent for father Jabati. And when father Jabati came into the operating room and started praying, the bleeding stopped. So <laughs> oh, wow. you ask how, how do I know if God's involved in this? It's, it's stories like that all the time. Kathy, can, can you describe maybe a typical day over there? It sounds like you guys are doing a lot of work. What does a normal day look like? We start with, um, we start with rosary at, the, at 6 o'clock, and then we have mass starts at 6.15. And so once mass is over, we have a quick breakfast, and then we start seeing post-ops between 7 and 7.30 or 8, depending on 
how many we had the day before the last couple of days. And then we start doing surgery. And then in between surgery, I'm running back to the clinic um, to see patients either to get them ready for surgery or if there's somebody that's come in like with an infection or an injury and to see how we're going to fit them into the surgery schedule. So if it's, we had a, a, a little girl that had a corneal laceration, but unfortunately we didn't have anybody with anesthesia. Now she was about 11 years old and all I had was to give her a benzodiazepine and have one of the guys talk to her about that. If she could be really still and let me sew her eye back up because you can't do a block when the globe's open. So you can't inject behind the eye. So all we could do was topical uh, the benzodiazepine and talk to her that if she would be really still, she could have an apple cedar, which is her favorite apple drink um, after the surgery. <laughs> and that's how we got through the surgery on this kid. And the guy who was holding Holy her God. hand and just, just rubbing her arm and talking to her about just a few more minutes, you'll have your apple seed or just a few more minutes. And of course, the benzodiazepine kind of took the edge off, but I had no other way to do it. I couldn't leave her eye open. I had to suture her cornea back together. So sometimes you have to do that by the seat of your pants. And I do that a lot. Gee whiz. Oh, my goodness. How, how do you guys get medications over there? What, what does that process look like? It's, it's difficult. We, we send a container to begin with. So we get some donations from pharmaceutical companies here in the United States. We buy some of the medicines from um, the local area. We get some from India because we can get those shipped in cheaper. The problem with getting those in Sierra Leone is sometimes they're counterfeit. They frequently will be counterfeit medications. So when you think you're giving them an antibiotic, you're not. Or if they think they're taking oh. an anti-malarial medicine, they're really not. So we would never, like for personal use, would never buy an antibiotic over there because we had a gastroenteritis. There's just no point in taking it. It's usually not going to help. So, um, but we, um, we try to get as many, uh, medicines donated as we can. And, and then we, everything that we have, we give, we give away. So, so in June, how many surgical procedures did you do? Well, in June, we did, um, 200 and, uh, 237. And then the, um, I had the fellow with me and she did, Oh, she probably did about a hundred. And then, um, we also have a cataract technician and he joined in and did some. So we did several hundred. We pushed about 3000 through the clinic. So those people are getting glasses. They're getting medicines for their glaucoma. Um, and we're hoping that they come back for surgery if we couldn't get them into the schedule because always there's more people than we can uh, treat because we have, we also have 10 outlying villages. So the guys that work for us, while we're not there, they go to 10 surrounding villages. They just split them up and they start examining patients and they go out and do their um, axial length and keratometry and their intraocular lens calculations so that when we do come back, we've just got lots of surgery to do. So uh, I want to follow up on that. But first, the surgery, what was the number one surgical procedure you did? Cataracts and Cataracts, intraocular yeah. lenses? Uh, yeah. What and, percent and of... Oh, the percent, probably 90%. But I also did something else this time, which was um, I got these little stints. Do you remember last time we talked about the minimally invasive glaucoma procedure? And yes. Okay. So, um, so I got some of those donated. So the patients who had elevated oh, intraocular yeah. pressure while I was in there doing their cataract surgery, I used this little stent to open the trabecular meshwork, the drain part of the eye, and then I let that little stent in. And I had 10 patients. And a stent is just a little tube for our listeners. Okay, yeah, exactly. And so um, these, you know, in the United States, this, the, the stents are used for mild to moderate glaucoma. Well, that's non-existent over there. Uh, when they come in, the pressure's <laughs> already 55. Their nerves are already cupped. Um, and so I had a number of them who were coming in for cataract surgery, who had significant cataracts, but their pressures were elevated. So I had one guy, 55, I did the cataract and the stent, got him down to 10. And I checked him every day for like five wow. days. He was 10 one day, 11 the next day. So normal pressure is 10 to 20. So I had- Oh, a, beautiful. Yeah, it was beautiful. So maybe we can save sight. Since they don't understand they've got to use medicine continually because we can't cure glaucoma, we can only control it. It's like diabetes, hypertension, that sure. sort of thing. 
that, that this may be a way in the future that we can preserve some of those people who have uh, glaucoma before it gets to end stage. Kathy, can you describe just the clinic physically a little bit? I'm trying to envision mm-hmm. this in my mind. Is this a, a big place, multiple rooms, one OR? What's it look like? Okay, it's um, it, we built onto it. So it started off as just one little tiny building that was um, like two rooms, the, a little clinic room and a little surgery room. But since then, we've gotten the clinic side to be larger. We've made an outside waiting room in the front of the building and an outside waiting area in the back of the building. And then we've enlarged the operating theater so that we actually have three surgical stations. So our biggest... thing that slowed us down this time is we didn't have people to help us get the patients in and out. So while, while the uh, global ophthalmology fellow was at one place and I was at one place and Mohammed sometimes was at one place, we'd be all be finished and go, okay, well, let's move this one and bring another one in. But it just takes time when you're doing all of that yourself and you've not got the, uh, oh, you know, yeah. the ancillary help that you need. Oh. Well, what about these people that you send out to the outlying clinics? Wouldn't they be able to help do that? Uh, they they are all doing something else. So they're, they're the ophthalmic nurse is in the clinic right now. The guy who is doing the IOL calculations is measuring people as well. The We also, when they go to the outlying clinics, we will send somebody like um, who works on the generator. And so the generator guy, I need him running the generator when I'm in the operating room so that I have light and microscope and I can see what I'm doing. Um, and so we uh-huh. do, they all multitask. And each time we go, we do additional training so that other people can learn other things. Um, but it, you know, it's just, it is what it is. We just do the best we can. I can't even imagine. I mean, we've, we've got a little clinic here and I know what it takes to run here. And we've got a whole person just for prior offs. You don't have prior offs <laughs> over there, but you've got a generator guy. So exactly. you need exactly. you need exactly. one person to man all these things. We've you know? got we've got we've got a couple of different generator guys because we have one generator that we now specifically have just for the operating room. The other generators are doing other things. Like we now had to get a, a we this is the first time that we've had autoclaves. In the past, we always lit a fire wow. outside and used a steam pot, and so we thought, well. <laughs> Okay, I know that sounds weird, but it really works. And, no, I believe it. And and so we, we were able to get some autoclaves, but the problem is they suck so much energy. So yeah. that was breaking down our 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 um, you know our power system. So we had to get another generator just for that. So it's just always it's like dominoes. You fix one thing and something else falls apart. And it's constant. And on that note, we're going to take a break and come back with more incredible stories from Sarabu Sierra Leone with Dr. Kathy Shanzer. And we are back with Dr. Doctor. And one of the hardest things about recording these is we get to talk off air. And then I'm like, oh, I wanted to catch that on air. So, Dr. Kathy, we're talking <laughs> about your mission work over in Sierra Leone. Tell us a little bit. You know, one of the critiques people have sometimes about mission work is you go for a week. How much good do you do? And then you go home. But this clinic that you guys started over there operates year round, right? Tell us about us. That's correct. When we, uh, when we established it, that was the goal, was to care for the people year-round. So patients are coming in all the time to get their glasses or get treated for glaucoma. If they have an injury, we have a guy who can sew them up. The volume of the cataract surgery is done when I'm there, so during January and June, or if we have another team uh, that happens to want to go there. And, and we've had that on occasion, not as frequently as we would like, because the need is so great, we could definitely take care of that. But I, I can remember when we did our satellite trip to Surabu before we established the eye clinic, and I said exactly that same thing. We've done surgery on these patients. Well, who's going to follow them? We're heading back to the capital city to get on a plane. What's going to happen? And Mohammed, who's our cataract technician, said, Doc, you have done your work. God will care for these people. Wow. So another challenge of faith. Um, but now we've got them there. So they're, they're, they see the post-ops after I've gone. And should they run into any really major problem, there's a government hospital in the capital city. It's seven hours away, but they could get there if there was something wow. that was drastic. So, so who trained these cataract techs, these other people who help you and go to the outline clinics? Okay. Some of them were already trained. 
Um, Mohammed was already trained to do cataract surgery by a wonderful Dr. Lowell Guess, who was just the most wonderful saint. He just, he died while we were over there uh, at a hundred years old. Um, oh he, was, he was a Methodist minister, a cataract surgeon, father of six kids, uh, just an amazing man. I just loved this man so much. Anyway, he, um, he uh, trained Mohammed and then Mohammed joined us in Sarabu. And then Mohammed has since gone and taken some um, additional courses in Nigeria. And, and there's one more program I want him to go to, to, to learn some additional things. When the um, fellows from Will's Eye come and join us, they frequently come a second time when they're no longer a fellow. And they've ah. been able to help uh, Mohammed hone in on his surgical skills as well. So Beautiful. they spent a lot of time helping him to get better. Um, some of the other things like doing the intraocular lens calculations, when we first started doing that, Momadou, who does that part, um, was so adorable because I was trying to teach him about uh, criteria that that there's certain things that if the eye is too long or too short or the keratometric readings or this or that <clears throat> because we really want to get we want to validate all of our data and we want good outcomes and so shortly after we've done a few cases he comes running to me and he goes doc doc i aim for plano which is meaning they don't need any correction and this person right. is a minus 0.37 what did i do wrong and i went no this is fabulous i wish i could get my technicians in the united states to understand this so they take everything <laughs> apart. everything you teach them that it is like it is becomes part of their body their being their everything we have done one regional continuing education program in the village where we invited all eye care workers to come into the village. We paid their transportation, their housing, their food, and we gave lectures and it was, it was amazing. Um, and we need to do that again. It's been a number of years since we did that, but for my own guys, I'm constantly trying to teach them while I'm there. Look at this, look at this. Let me show you how to do that. Um, and so it's an ongoing thing. And that's true, not just in the operating room, that's true of Tom working with somebody with a generator or somebody helping with the autoclave or whatever. Everything, it's a constant reinforcement. Tell us, Kathy, is, is, oh, I'm sorry. Go for it, Tom. Oh, I was just going to ask, how do you get your patients numb? Is everything local that you do or do you have an anesthesiologist sometimes? We sometimes do have, uh, it's not an anesthesiologist, but he's more like a nurse anesthetist. Anesthetist. And, yeah, and he will uh, start the IVs on the children and give them ketamine so I can do their cataracts because we have about 10% of kids that come in with um, juvenile cataracts or sometimes congenital cataracts. And if you don't give them a clear image, they'll develop amblyopia. So the pathway from the eye to the brain doesn't develop yes. normally. So they need to have that cataract surgery. So um, he will start an IV and give them ketamine and he just keeps them. Um, keeps his hand on their chest going, okay, doc, the kid is still breathing. Meanwhile, I'm sweating bullets. But, <laughs> Holy um, smokes. We don't have any monitoring equipment. So, um, oh so that's, that's a little bit of a, of a challenge as well. Um, some of the surgery we can do straight topical. Some we do a retrobulbar or peribulbar block where we block behind the eye, sort of depending yes. on what we're what we're going to be doing. And if it's more of a lid procedure, it's going to be just a local infiltration like you would do with one of your procedures. Um, Very good. But nobody gets yeah, sedation. Nobody except the children. Nobody, it's, you know, it's like, here's a bullet, bite on it. But they're very stoic and, and they're, um, they, they're desperate to get their eyes repaired. So they, they, they're still. Wow. Tell, tell us, Kathy, about spiritual conversations you might have doing this work over there with the patients. <clears throat> well, it's really very interesting because, in the, you know, when you're seeing patients post-op, that's, that's when they really see the light of day and the light of the Lord because they start praising me for this surgery. And, and I constantly turn it around and say, no, God is a great healer. Let us give him the glory and praise. And, and they immediately are just so happy because they do, they are such a joyful people. So this group of people have, they have no shelter. They have no, you know, no housing. Their food is minimal. They don't, you know, their clothes are horrible, 
but they have a faith in God that would put us to shame. And so they start praising God. The other thing is that uh, Sierra Leone is mostly Muslim, but in our village, it's about half Catholic and half Muslim because on Catholic mission property, there are three entities, Sacred Heart Catholic Church, the eye clinic and the mosque are all on Catholic mission property. And mm. so when we're there, at least one of the Fridays that we're there, we go into the mosque and they pray over us. And it gives me an opportunity to thank them for helping us because it takes the entire village to house these people, to be sure that everyone, because there's no motels, there's no, there's, there's, there's nothing other than someone else's hut for them to stay in. And the chief imam, well, he'll house 40 people in his little compound within within just a few days. And he just keeps turning that over and bringing more and more in. So he's totally supporting the work that we're doing. And so when we go to the mosque, it's, it's, it's so important for me to thank them that they're helping us to do God's work. And so I feel like we're evangelizing with them, with the, with the Muslims, as well as with all the patients. So how many people come each time you travel there? You mean how many people in the group? Yes. How many are in the group that comes there for that month that you're there who are not normally there? Uh, Okay. So the the group that we travel with is it's always Tom and myself and maybe the fellow from Will's Eye and then anybody else who wants to come and we can find work for everybody to do. The village itself doubles in size. Tell me about the of the housing facilities for the people that, that like where you stay and others that are helping you. Okay. Paint a we picture built, for our listeners. We built a, um, a small um, building. We, we kind of call it a retreat center because it's five rooms. Each room has a small bed in it, three, three small beds. So we can house 15 people. And we also have a toilet and a gravity fed shower. So the, I, the, our little, house and the one for the volunteers where we all stay are the only place in the village that have toilets and gravity fed showers. Everybody else just pours a bucket over their head or goes out to the river. Um, and there's a lot of latrines and that sort of thing. Some just open defecation, but we're the only ones that have real toilets. So we felt real up class because we've only had this, um, we've only had this building for about four years. So we built that. And what are temperatures like there? I'm assuming no air conditioning. <laughs> no, and it's all—it's always hot, but it's either hot and rainy or it's hot and dry. Uh, January is <laughs> a little bit, a little bit cooler, um, and fine cooler. It, well, it, it sometimes can get to eighty, um, but most of the time it's like ninety to hundred, sometimes one hundred and ten. Um, so it's 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 pretty hot. Um, in in June, when it starts to rain, though, the rain is so heavy, it washes away the roads, and it's so noisy that you, you can hardly have a conversation when it's going on. So, wow. Gee and, whiz. And you ought to have something to put over you when it starts raining. I mean, a poncho or something, because you will be drenched. Tell, tell us a little bit more about the culture of the people over there. It, it sounds like it's an agricultural community. It is. And they're, they're a very humble, um, quiet group of people. They're, um, they're, they're loving. They're, they welcome us with open arms. Uh, they are so hopeful when they come into the eye clinic that we'll be able to restore their sight. But they still, they've got the hope, but they also have faith in that it is God's will that whatever happens is God's will. And and that's how they sign their consent forms as well. So it's a one-liner that says, I blank, give, um, give permission for whichever eye surgery um, through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. And they put their, their fingerprint there and that's kind of it. And we say that's awesome. beautiful. hard and that's kind of what we do. That's the way we've always done it. So... What kind of so support you, do you get from like over overarching missionary groups? Do you have any kind of backup or financial backing or anything like that? We um, 
we do have some. We get um, some pharmaceutical and surgical supplies from different companies, so that's real helpful. Alcon's been real helpful. Surgical Eye Expeditions. Getting the um, fellows from Will's Eye Hospital has been great because that gives you another person who can help you do surgery. And like I said, they frequently will want to come back on another trip and help us again. Um, and so, so they're they're really 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 good about that. Um, we've got a number of donors throughout, um, gosh, th throughout the United States who uh, will donate. And we've recently started an endowment program to make yes. it sustainable. So we're hoping that we can get the endowment to the point that the um, program can continue just on the interest so that if I fall off the face of the earth, right now we depend mostly on my income to keep the clinic going. And so we're, we're, you know, constantly sending money over there every couple of weeks and to pay the salaries and all the other things that they need, you know, to get diesel and, and take care of the generator and all those things that it takes to run the clinic. And so, um, you know, that, that's, that's been the big thing now, but I, you know, I'm, Although I keep saying I'm going to last forever. I think God has a different plan, you know, eventually <laughs> he'll call me home. And, uh, and so we, we really feel blessed because um, the, we started the endowment program. And we're, one of the things we're doing is the St. Joseph's Walk. So from the Catholic Church through the eye clinic and to the mosque, we're having bricks that all say gifts of Sarabu on them. And people who donate money can have their little, they can have their little, name on it or in memory of or whatever. And that's going to be the pathway um, on St. Joseph's Walk to help us um, to help us to in this endowment. But um, human resources is another thing that to keep it going um, that that's that's concerning. But we had a young man who came to us and said, if you will put me through medical school, I will become an ophthalmologist and come back and take over for you when you are too old and weak to continue. Wow. Um, so he's in his fourth year of medical school there in Sierra Leone and their program is eight years. So he's got four more years of medical school and then I have to find a residency for him. And then he plans to come back to the village and he'll take over for wow. me when I'm too old and too weak and decrepit. <laughs> <laughs> Which I can't, can't foresee at this point. Um, <laughs> so did you ever consider living full time in Africa? Well, I can't because I have to get back to the United States to make some money. So make I some can money. That's a good back point. Over there. So it's never been part of the part of the plan. Um, I, I think I could I could do that pretty easily if I still had an income. That's a good point. Um, what's the hardest part of operating in Sierra Leone? A couple of things. Um, one is getting the point across to them that there are some things that are not curable. Diabetes, you can't cure. Hypertension, you've got to control these things. Glaucoma is the same way. The other is it is such a male-dominated society. So I am not Dr. Shanzer over there. I am Mr. Tom's very fine woman. They oh, my goodness. And they she is, me. but. <laughs> yes. Well, they watch me do all the work. They watch me do the surgery. And then they turn to Tom and thank him. And when we were setting up the clinic, we had to go through the, the paramount. That's really bad. Yeah, well, anyway, God's trying to make me humble. So Jeez. we had to go through the section chief, the town chief, and the paramount chief. They didn't let me be in any of the meetings. They all had to be with Tom about setting up the eye clinic. And the same when we dug water wells. It all had to go through the chiefs. So when you talk about people coming into mission, you have to respect the hierarchy that's already there. Uh, otherwise, it's not going to work. So if I had gone in there and said, look, I'm the doctor, it's going to be like I say, it would never work. So wow. I just quietly stand behind Tom, do my cataract surgery, and then let him take the praise. Gee oh, whiz, you, you'd never plan, you never think of that ahead of time. Holy cow. What... It, maybe maybe the other insights or what kind of advice, I guess, would you have? I mean, for a student who's thinking, I'd like to try a medical mission trip, or maybe somebody has this on their heart, they know this is what they want to do. What advice do you have for them? All right. Well, I think that's a great question because people will say, oh, I want to go, but I can't do anything. That's so false because <laughs> just the ministry of being there, just by virtue of the fact 
that you have made the effort to come to this village and to be with these people. They are so touched. They really are so touched. So the ministry of being there, I think, is just just being present, being there, letting them know that you care about them as a person, that you want to see things be better for them. And then then if if people have an interest somewhere else, so maybe they have an interest in water wells or in, um, we had a, um, a church in Memphis who did a working retreat. So the priests that came with them, they, they didn't do the six o'clock mass with us. With us, Father did their mass at 9 a.m. Like, how cush can you uh-huh. be? But anyway, so they'd have mass and then they'd have breakfast and then he'd give a little talk. But they would do things like they worked on the church and needed some repairs. They hung some uh, stations of the cross because there were no stations of the cross. So there can be things like that that uh, can go on. And then, like I said, the schools always need help. We've got people working in the computer center. We have a whole sports program now. We even have a um, we have a handicapped soccer team so they're all in crutches except for the goalies and the goalies only have one arm so oh um, wow so it's amazing to watch these kids i mean amazing so it's just it makes you so grateful and it's life-changing for young people college and high school students go it changes their whole outlook on life and for me every time i go i come back physically exhausted but so spiritually uplifted because i just see the god's hand in all of this so do the people come for the whole one month trip with you at a time or might they come for segments of it? It varies. Some people come the whole time. Oftentimes priests can't stay that long. So if a priest comes, they'll leave after a week and we just have one of the guys take them back to the airport and, and they go back home. So Kathy, to wind this up, what final words of advice, wisdom, or how to donate do you have? Well, I would first of all, like anybody who's listening, please pray for us because, um, you know, Mother Teresa says uh, God doesn't expect us to be successful, but expects us to be faithful. And and that's what the archbishop was trying to get across to us. You know, the problem with Americans, we have no faith in God. And so we had to put all of our faith in that. We were we were amazed that the clinic actually worked. We were not so sure that <laughs> even after all that we were doing or that it even continues to work because there's always such hurdles. Um, but I would ask people to please pray for us. If people are interested, they're more than welcome. They, the contact information is at the gifts of Sarabu, uh, com so that, um, or .org, excuse me, so they can go on there and, and learn more about it. Um, they can contact us, uh, We're happy to have anybody who wants to come, and we'll put everybody to work. Kathy, thank you for a tremendously fascinating interview, Insight into Sierra Leone. God bless you in your work. Thank you. God bless you. Bye. And we are back at Dr. Doctor. We've got the answer to the medical trivia question, and this category is going to be one that my mom really likes, blind spots, because whenever I was learning how to drive, that was probably the, the two most common words Maybe maybe slower or stopping space, but blind spots, I, I've got that seared in my memory. So Tom's got a different job. blind spot take. Uh, this is an anatomy blind spot. Tell us about that, Tom. All right. So the question is, what is the cause of the blind spot, which isn't right center? It's about 15 degrees to the uh, outside, if I got that right. Yes. 15 degrees to the outside of each eye. So- there are photoreceptors, little cells that that collect light and then send the signals to the brain. But there's one spot near the middle that doesn't have any photoreceptors, any light sensitive. And you know what that is? That's where the optic nerve leaves the eye. So that nerve does not have those eye receptors. It's roughly round. And that's why there's a blind spot. Now, the brain makes up for it, uh, both with context and with the other eye, so that we don't notice these blind spots. But I always remember learning how to, you know, go that night, look at a star and look a little way to the side and it would disappear if you only had one eye open. So it's normal. Don't worry. Amen. So Andrew, top three takeaways from Dr. Kathy. You know, there was a lot of them. I really liked all the stories she was able to tell. I would say number one, you know, kind of as, as a, a different experience than I had on my mission trip is if the place has ongoing follow-up and this is an established place you're going to visit, 
that's probably going to give you a better experience if you want to go on a medical mission than, hey, we're going to go visit this place and come back home and there's nothing there before or after. Leave No right. Trace is good for camping, not for medical missions. Oh, um, good analogy. So, yeah, just you put on a bumper sticker. Number two, <laughs> I, I would say one of the things she highlighted, I, I felt, you know, this is not my calling. I felt like I had to kind of go to, on one to go to medical school. She said, if it's on your heart and this is something that you want, you're going to love it and you're going to get bit by the bug like her, her husband was. Yeah. And so if this is something that, that you feel called to, make it a priority. And, and chances are, if, if you're like Kathy and other people I know, you will fall in love with that. And so then I would say number three, uh, kind of she, she ended with it, pray for them. They're doing good work. Uh, Kathy works in America to provide free care over in Africa to people who can't afford it. So pray for them. If you can donate, please do that. We got their website in the show notes and uh, I really enjoy talking to her. Yep. And we may have her on again. And you know, those of you who listen at 1.5, you may not have to amp it up to 1.5 with Dr. Kathy. <laughs> she was incredible. She got more High quality power. in her time unit. Yeah. No, no. It's a, it's a blast interviewing people like her that are so excited, so animated about what they do. So, and thank you for listening to yet another episode of Dr. Doctor. You can find this and all old episodes on our website, drdoctor.org. Just click on episode archive at the top where you can search over 275 episodes by topic or guest. And since this episode had to do with vision, we have a video version of this podcast. Just kidding. <laughs> all of our episodes are video as well. Not just this one. If you go to our oh, the website, recent ones. <laughs> click on the YouTube link. Yeah, we just started this a couple of months ago, but pe people like it. I've enjoyed it. I get to see Tom. Up at the top, there's a YouTube link on the website, <laughs> drdoctor.org. That's what you remember. Also, click submit a question if you've got a good idea for a topic or a question like a stance. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Andrew Mullally. We're signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-host. Have a question for our doctors or a topic you'd like to hear about? Call or text your questions to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or fill out the form at drdoctor.org. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Dr. Doctor Show and tune in for new episodes every Friday. Plus, find all our past episodes at drdoctor.org. This show is a production of the Spoke Street Media Podcast Network. For more great podcasts, visit spokestreet.com.